and we are sure of this what christ began he will complete we continue Welcome back to the Rambling Preacher Podcast. My name is Jesse, and I am your host, and today we are discussing weaponizing the Word. And some of you may already be reciting Ephesians 6 and the Armor of God, verse 17, the Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, or Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to pierce, um, you know, soul, spirit, joint, marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and tensions of man. Um, but that is not what I'm talking about. The Word is a weapon. A spiritual weapon. Every time you read the Word of God, you're making a supernatural decision. So rather, what I am discussing is when we, as believers, presuppose the text, we use and abuse the Word of God to manipulate fellow believers into a certain behavior um, that we find more desirable. And I want to repeat this one more time because this is a very intentional definition I came up with, but we use and abuse the Word of God to manipulate fellow believers into a certain behavior that we find more desirable. Um, This can be found throughout the church today. We are misunderstanding, misapplying, and misconstruing the Word of God for selfish gain. And so we have to remember the rules of hermeneutics, right? Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. There must be unity. Uh, we want to pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates the text to us. Um, it must be in- understood within the historical context, um, within the context of what's happening. Oftentimes that is the primary culprit I see happening, is we're presupposing things, we're putting on an American paradigm, and we're reading the uh, Scripture outside of its context. Um, so what is happening? What do I mean when I say weaponizing the Word? Um Much of this happens and occurs because of biblical ignorance, right? Um, And they may boil it down to a different interpretation, but really, it really is um, just uh, misunderstanding the context and using the Word of God inappropriately. And so I I do want to come back to Hebrews 4 real quick, uh, verse 12, how it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Right, And this is that famous debate, Spurgeon, um, Christ or the Word of God, and says we cannot separate, and I agree with that, right? But the Word of God is already supernatural. It's already powerful. We know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. That alone is reason to believe the Word of God. But we know it's alive and active. It discerns the thoughts and intentions within our hearts, right? And our hearts are meant to be emphatically bent to unto the will of God. We know that according to uh, Romans 12 and other texts that our heart, once we're given a new heart, uh, which was prophesied in the Old Testament, is now meant to be aligned with the will of God, aligned with the heart of the Father. 
Um, but the word of God, it knows you. It sees you. Christ knows you, right? He sees you. Um, and he is the high priest who intercedes for us, which we see in Romans 8 verse 34. So we don't need to use the word of God as a weapon against God's people. That's not its intent. It's meant to come alongside people. And yes, it, it sees um, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But that is not for us to use and wield in that manner. Um, it's actually useful for rebuke and exhortation and, and, and edification and training in righteousness, right? So it's not meant um, to be this weapon. It's meant to be a tool, a resourceful tool, a beneficial tool. Um, and yeah, it will be a weapon against the enemy. It'll be a weapon against the world, but it's not meant to be a weapon within our own camp. Um, and, and so my question for you, right, is are you using it as a weapon against God's people? Um, leave that confrontation. Leave that discipline to a pastor. We need someone who's a Galatians 6-1 brother um, handling the word of God in a disciplinarian type of way, right? It says, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. So when we're using the word of God improperly, um, I think it's a very dangerous game. Um, and so the first thing I want to start with, I'm going to go through as many as I can, and that's why I am talking a little fast. It is late at night. I didn't have a chance to do it earlier today. Um, even my voice is a little uh, hoarse just from the long day. It's it's a late night. And so I'm talking a little fast, but we'll, we'll see how many get through before I decide to call it and pick it up maybe in a couple weeks. But I want to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. This is probably the easiest one uh, to go through and to talk about, but we'll use it. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And how is this weaponized? How is this used? Well, do not get tattoos. Your body is a temple. Do not get piercings. Do not, you know, do not pierce your nose. Do not pierce your belly button. Do not pierce your ear. Do not tattoo your arm. Do not do that. Do not cut your hair. Do not color your hair. Do not, right? It becomes uh, religious rule keeping and a form of legalism that is forced down upon other Christians. And first of all, to understand the phrase, let us define what a temple is, right? The temple was a sacred meeting place for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, they went there to worship, to make sacrifices, and to make pleas to God. They were joyful when they approached the temple because they knew the presence of God um, is in this place. Well, we have to look at this within its context, right? In verse 16, we see, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. So it's actually saying every other sin besides joining yourself with somebody is outside of your own body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And so when you say your body is a temple and you're sinning against your body, this is specifically and only talking about sexual immorality, right? Our bodies are not our own. They are Christ's. We have been sealed to the Holy Spirit. We have been brought into a family, the church, right? The church is now a part of the body of Christ. And so thus, we are a part of the body of Christ. Um, in verse 15, it actually goes on to kind of elaborate this more, jumping back even more. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, meaning you, uh, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So the whole given context of this is do not 
be sleeping with a prostitute, do not be sexually immoral, right? So to use this for piercings and tattoos um, is, once again, coming back to the terminology we've chosen to use is weaponizing the word against the, the church, um, right? So when a man and woman lay down together, they become one flesh, right? We can have a tattoo conversation on another day. I don't, I don't care about that, right? But the point is this, teach the word of God within its proper context and use it to actually say what is being said and allow the Holy Ghost to do the convicting, right? This verse, this verse will get to those who need to hear it. Um, but do not use this to bash someone who has tattoos, Okay, the next one, and I'll probably spend a little more time here, but once again, I'm moving quickly. Uh, he's in Hebrews 10. Um, I recently watched a video that was attacking um, hyper grace or free gracers or antimonians, or at least that's what they said they were attacking. But um, the more I listened to them, the more I felt like they were actually just attacking the truth of the gospel um, because they were coming hard after like, you will have genuine faith, like you better have works, right? And we must be very careful um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and many, many, many well-known scholars uh, with, with character who are no longer with us, uh, and proven teachers have warned us not to assume someone's faith, right? God knows. Um, but they were pushing this idea that if, if you sin, if you live a lifestyle of sin, then you're giving heaven a middle finger, right? And they kind of just were going on this tangent, and you have to be so careful. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones even said, like, when you preach the gospel, if you don't have some that are charging you with antimonianism, then you likely didn't preach it right. Um, and the, my favorite wording is from Vody Bauckham, who says, um, am I telling you that once you're saved, you can just go do whatever you want to? Yes, I am but your want to will change, right? That is the, I mean, if your want to is going to change, then how are you going to want to fall back into sin, right? If your want to has changed, you're given a new heart and our call is to bend that heart to the will of the Father by the unction empowering of the Spirit, by the um, author and perfecter of our faith, which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a minute. But all of these things, right? We have to be very careful, Um very careful looking at the fruit of someone's life and determining the root, right? That is one of the calls to watch out for false teachers. And we are called to judge and judge righteously according to Matthew 7, right? And we are called to uh, call out sin and, and face discipline, but we're not called to say, well, they're clearly false, right? Um, and what I mean by that is uh, apostates. We will know they're apostates when they leave us, right? According to First John, when they left us and they were not, they were not truly of us. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, I want to get back to my notes here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For, for if we go on sinning will deliberately or willfully, depending on your translation, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You can already see how some fiery hell brimstone preacher is going to use this to try to scare the hell out of people, literally, um, and say, do not sin. Because if you sin intentionally, if you go and you see that girl, and then you decide to meditate on that, or if you see that sight and you decide to go and visit that site, or if you see that sin and you decide to go and get drunk anyway, right? They're going to say, you just should just have fearful expectation of judgment because the fury of fire is going to consume you, right? They're going to come after you. But the first thing that's so important to note on this, um, I actually sent my mother a YouTube video on this from David Wilkerson, a fantastic 
Pentecostal preacher, right? Um, and he, he, he was like, scripture must interpret scripture. And we know that we cannot jump to unscriptural conclusions. But so many do when it comes to this passage, right? They are using this passage as a way to weaponize and attack fellow believers who are struggling with sin and struggling with their sanctification, and they're attacking their justification. So I don't, I don't have time to jump through every single passage, um, but when we are, we're looking at Scripture, interpreting Scripture, we have to know what this means and what it doesn't mean, right? In 1 John chapter 3, we see something very similar. In verse 8, it says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Pretty simple claim, right? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, a habit, a lifestyle of it. For God's seed abides in him, right? He abides in us, and he cannot keep on sinning, right? Those that are truly saved, truly given a new heart, um, they cannot keep on sinning. You know, and I'm not saying we're not going to have stumbling seasons. We're not going to have struggle. We're not going to have moment by moment lapses. But what I am saying is we will not stay there. Our sanctification will come around, right? It will grow. We will grow in Christ. We will grow in faithfulness, um, not because we are faithful, but because he is faithful, right? Because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very, uh, very similar language. But we have to uh, notice here that it's uh, sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge. And so I want to look at this a little closer. Deliberate and intentional sinning. The sin here is rejecting Christ deliberately, saying, I look at you, Christ. I have a knowledge of you, Christ. I don't care. So if that is not you, and this is actually something Wilkerson said as well, if you are already nervous, oh, am I doing this? Am I am I sinning? Am I am I chancing uh my my salvation with Christ? Am I am I doing this? Am I if that's already your heart and you're repentant and you're worried about this, and he said, then this isn't relevant to you. Because this is someone who is saying, I see you, Christ. I know you, Christ. I don't care. Bye-bye. Right? He said the only people that are guilty of this verse would be people that read it and don't care. He said, but if you care and you're concerned with your salvation and you're concerned with your relationship with God, then this this really isn't about you. And I'll, I'll prove that here in a moment. Right? But it says, and then note, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This doesn't say after receiving the baptism of the Spirit, after receiving the Holy Ghost, this doesn't say after receiving salvation. Um, faith is not a one-step process. It's not just receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? That's actually step one in faith, right? That's faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, right? Step one in faith is to know the truth. Um, but it is to know um, and then trust and obey, right? So when we're talking about genuine faith, alive faith, active faith, it knows, it trusts, it obeys. So if you have a knowledge of the truth, yet you are deliberately disobeying and deliberately not trusting, that is not faith. That is not genuine faith. And it is not knowledge that saves you. It is faith that saves you. Sola fide, right? And so to use this uh, verse to attack people who cling to sola fide um, is improper. And it's weaponizing the word of God against his bride, which is, I think, blasphemy. Um Right, so verse 26, this is not talking about true faith. This is talking about someone like Judas, right? Who knew Christ, who knew Christ was truly God, who knew he was a prophet, who knew 
Um, but he didn't trust him and he disobeyed him and he went against him and he turned against him, right? Uh, the one who no longer remains a sacrifice. This isn't, and I hate that people use this and weaponize this in such a way that's like, if you're sinning willfully, then Christ no longer wants to forgive you. That is not what's happening here, right? An apostate is turning from the only way to salvation, which is Christ. So if you are deliberately rejecting Christ and turning against him, then there is no other salvation. That's what it's saying. It's not saying that if you're sinning and you're a Christian, but you struggle with sin and you keep on sinning, then Christ is going to stop forgiving you. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Christ's blood can no longer save the person who's deliberately rejected Christ's blood, right? You cannot find salvation, quote unquote, out there in the world, in your prodigal living, you have to come back to the Father's house. <laughs> and this is why John can write in 1 John chapter 2, right? We, I love John. Um, but 1 John chapter 2, it says in verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us, right? Apostates are really, really good at making you believe that they're saved, but they're not. Because if they leave and they went out from you, then they were never of you, right? And now it's just plain that they're not of you. And that's what this is referencing. It's talking about apostates, right? And so this weaponization... It's turning it into a religious rule-keeping, once again, a works-based legalism. I'm all for preaching holiness. I'm all for preaching against sin. But oftentimes this message gets shouted out more than the whole section of this verse that it concludes with, right? Usually people will even go on to weaponize verse 38 where it says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And they'll really emphasize, like, God is not pleased with you if you are not living by faith, right? And they'll kind of translate that to mean not someone who believes in Christ for their salvation, but they'll uh, translate that to like, you know, word of faith type of things. Like you're not believing for a healing. You're not believing for a miracle. You're not believing for a, a mountain to be moved. Um, then God is displeased with you. He is, he is, has no pleasure in you because you lack faith. And we look at Matthew eight as an example, like, Oh, ye of little faith. Right. And he, he rose and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm, right? And the people, and they marveled. And I love that they said this, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him, right? When God is, is looking at someone who is of his uh, flock, you are one of his sheep, one of his little sheep. He, he pulls you into his bosom, as Isaiah would say, and he loves you and shows you, right? So when you are of little faith and when you are struggling, it's not saying he has no pleasure in you, Christian. This is actually referencing an apostate, right? Because righteous ones shall live by faith means they're going to uh, know, uh, trust in and obey Christ, right? This isn't talking about uh, something you don't know right? Like moving a mountain. But I love this. Allow God to reveal to you. And I wrote this as a note. Allow God to reveal to you more and more about himself so you can learn to trust him more and more, right? And in verse 35, I want to read this uh, in Hebrews 10, the kind of the concluding section of this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, right? We, we are supposed to have a confidence, it has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, right? And that is eternal life. 
that is the uh, resurrection of the body, right? And get into eschatology, um, eschatological type of things, right? Um, But I love to top it off, right? We see in verse 39, but we are not, right? This presupposes in verse 10, uh, or Hebrews 10, it, it actually says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? If we go on, but then he goes on to say in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, right? To top it off, this this scripture, this passage that's weaponized against believers, it's not even written to believers, for believers, about believers. It's talking about apostates. He's saying, you are not this. We are not this, right? It's an exhortation. It's meant to be an encouragement, right? It's supposed to say, this is an opportunity to to buy in completely into Christ, right? But that's not us. We're not going to be the ones who fall back, right? Um, in he, this is actually something I, I talked about at the school this last week. But earlier in Hebrews chapter three, verse nineteen, the Israelites did not enter into the promised land as we know based on the Old Testament. Um, and it says in verse nineteen, they did not due to unbelief. Right. So the author is writing to these Hebrews who are uh, exposed to the knowledge of Christ, but the assumption based on the context, based on the entire book, when you read it in its entirety, is that these people have not yet um, trusted in Christ for salvation. They know of him, they're considering it, and he actually compares in Hebrews 3 to 4, 3 and 4, kind of them as the Israelites right about to enter into the promised land, yet because of a bad report and unbelief, they don't inherit the the promised land, the place, the place of rest, the the place of the covenant, and so he is essentially informing these uh, these Hebrews that Christ is this new covenant, and you are right at that same precipice where you can enter into the new covenant if you believe, but if you do not, you'll be like the Israelites who spent forty years in the wilderness. He, he's essentially saying, do not apostatize enter in, cross over into this new covenant, right? So we have to keep Hebrews context in mind when we're reading passages like this, right? And I love that in verse uh, 16 of chapter four, he goes on to say, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help um, in our time of need, right? He encourages them to turn Christ. Uh, The Holy Spirit asks us to approach the king confidently to obtain mercy. What What a beautiful, beautiful thing right? Uh, in Hebrews 12, right? Therefore, since we also, and this is, I want to end with the Hebrews 10 with this one, right? Since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance that and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a gospel invitation right at the end of Hebrews, a gospel partnership call to the Hebrews. Let us, right? The witnesses around us, we, we have this cloud of witnesses, you know, the saints, the people of God, the, the churches, the people, right? Start the race, jump into the race, join the race, jump in, right? Keeping our eyes on Christ. He is the perfecter. He is the pioneer, the author of our faith, right? The idea is that Christ brings um, our fa- faith, our 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 walk with him, our race with him into a fullness of completion, uh, according to perfecter, which is mature or complete, right? So if 
keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so this kind of contradicts Hebrews 10. If you're saying, well, you're struggling with sin, then uh, toodaloo, right? God is pissed at you, for lack of better words. Probably shouldn't say that. But, right, we, we, <laughs> he is the king, and we are merely recipients of his divine grace. And so to be using this word uh, in Hebrews 10 to just come on and attack people and strike fear into them because you want them to live a holier lifestyle, that's improper. We can use so many other passages in the Word of God to exhort and encourage people to live a holy lifestyle, right? But using this and scaring people is not the way to do it. Um, and so, um, what time is it? Let's get through one more together. First um, John chapter 4, and the reason I'm doing this one, there's so many others that I've been considering, right? Because everyone misinterprets scripture everywhere. So it becomes easy, but it's trying to find the ones that people weaponize. Um, But in verse 18, we see there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now you may often say um, this is, I don't think this is weaponized, right? Um, It's often memorized as like perfect love casts out fear. But the, the way I've seen it used is to shame those who have stress, anxiety, fear, worry, or even depression right? But that is not the point in this. The point is actually about God's love for us. Um, and it goes on to say like, for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love, right? So if we fear judgment from God, we fear the judgment seat, we fear his throne, then we have not been perfected in love, in his love. We have not been brought to maturity or perfection as Hebrews 12, 12, 12 says, Right, and so I have seen this weaponized. I've seen this one used to attack Christians, um, saying like, "If you have perfect love, then you won't have fear. You won't be afraid. You won't have anxiety." And it actually becomes kind of like a word of faith type of thing as well, where it's like, you, you, "Perfect love casts out fear. You have, the faith is opposed with fear, and you you cannot have fear. You cannot have worry. You can't have depression. You can't have anxiety." Right, and I'm not saying those things aren't sins, and I'm not even saying that you know those aren't conversations for another day. But what I am saying is, don't use this improperly, because this is talking about um, being perfected in His love, means that you're not afraid of His punishment, right? And that's actually what's funny about going back to Hebrews 10. You know, reading verse 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Um, but a fearful expectation of judgment, right? People weaponize this and use this. And I've heard this and I've seen this. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I struggle with sin, right? Like anyone, right? I recognize my struggles. I see um, my, my moments of pride, anger, my moments of um, a slothfulness, right? My, my moments of envy or greed. I see those things, right? I see all of it laid before me, right? And I don't have a fearful expectation of judgment. Why? Because I am focusing my eyes upon Christ as Hebrews 12, one would say, or 12, one and two would say, I'm fixing my eyes upon Christ and he is the author. He is the perfecter of my faith and I am perfected by his love for me. I have a healthy understanding of his love for me. And um, because of this, right, I do not fear punishment. Why? Because I am sola fide, right? I am sola Christus. I am sola gratia, right? Like I am completely clinging to Christ. As Hebrews 10 would say, I approach the throne of God confidently, not because of my works, but because I have a sprinkled clear conscience, knowing that Christ and his blood paid for me, right? So I have realized this agape love, and thus I do not fear punishment. And that's what it's talking about in verse 18. But yet people use this and weaponize all of these passages to essentially, in my experience, to these ones that I referenced today. There's more to come. 
but these are usually weaponized and used against the church to attack the church in legalism, um, in uh, faith, like you don't have enough faith, you're not doing this right, you're not doing that right, in uh, fear-based, you better be afraid of God's judgment because you're sinning too much, right? But we have a throne of grace. That's why Christ was joyful to follow through with the will of God and, and face death and face shame and spill his blood. He wasn't joyful for that just so he could get to the throne and be really mad at you when you struggle with sin. That is not why he did what he did. He went through what he did. He died on the cross. He was shamefully naked on the cross, bare for all to see, bloody and broken and barely recognizable because he wanted to shame you for your struggle with sin. That is not what it is. Don't listen to these liars and hypocrites and false teachers that are propagating some kind of weaponized version of the gospel. It's sick. It's sick. Christ died for you so that he could look upon you with love and grace and mercy and draw in the sand and say, I forgive you. Go on and sin no more. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance, not these faithful, faith-filled, hell-bound preachers that are trying to scare you into repenting. Right. And I know there are wonderful people of God that maybe look at this a little differently than I do, but I get passionate, right, about the gospel. And I think we have to be so careful about doing anything that is gospel plus theology. And it is running rampant in America. And that's one thing I just want to do a quick shout out to Theocast. I think they do such a great job of making sure they are never gospel plus. They are gospel, gospel, gospel. Right. And not a lot of people do that. And so we have to, when we come to the word of God, let the word, interpret the word, trust uh, character Christians, trust teachers, right? Trust the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and don't let people push you into legalism. Don't let people push you into uh, things that really are so twisted out of context, right? There's so many more that I could do, um, but I have to stop just due to time, due to how late it is tonight. Um, I may continue this straight out in a couple weeks because I still have like three or four that I am chomping at the bit to talk about. Um, But the bottom line is this. If you see someone using the word of God as their own tool for destruction, as their own tool for discouragement, as their own tool for division and dissension or anything similar, be weary of them. Oftentimes, many of these people are ignorantly turning God's word into their own personal assault weapon, right? Which is truly a blasphemy of God's word. We must regard, regard the word of God highly. We must care about getting it correct. We must have the correct interpretation the correct hermeneutical approach, look at the context, allow scripture to interpret scripture and use it appropriately, right? We are called, um, Paul calls Timothy to be skilled in the handling of the word of God, right? We are called to handle it well. Um, and so until next time, allow this to kind of get some thoughts brewing and allow yourself to, to, I want this to stir you to get into the word of God and challenge oftentimes, not in a, in a rebellious type of way, but in a healthy, desiring the word of God type of way, challenge things that people have told you in the past, maybe, and, and allow yourself to get into the word of God. Um, and, tr- and, and lean into your pastors, lean into your local pastor, lean into your your husband or your wife, and, and really lean into the spirit. Pray, pray, pray. But until next time, I encourage you, um, think on it. There is no greater joy than the worth in knowing Christ. He has delivered us for his glory. Whether